Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Full contact. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Just four days now from the start of the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan. We're with you every Monday throughout the tournament to keep you updated with all the latest going on. Alongside me today is a World Cup winner and a World Rugby Hall of Famer. It's former England back rower Maggie Alfonsi. We'll be casting our eye over all the home nations ahead of the tournament openers this weekend. England kick off their campaign at home to Tonga on Sunday morning. One man who won't be part of Eddie Jones' squad is Danny Kerr, the experienced scrum half, and his omission was a surprise to some, but he'll be joining us to talk through his feelings on the squad, Eddie Jones and the match at the weekend. We'll also be speaking to the Pacific Island Welfare CEO and former Samoan international Daniel Leo about the threat that they and the other Pacific Island sides pose heading into the World Cup. Two of the tournament favourites, New Zealand and South Africa, meet on the opening weekend in Pool B and the former Springbok team, Stelport, will join us to look ahead to that big clash. Plus, we'll be speaking to Maggie about her own Rugby World Cup memories, her playing days, and we'll get her take on the difficult topic of transgender rugby players and their place or otherwise in the women's game. Maggie, hello. Hello, Brian. Are you going out to Japan? I am, yep. I'm leaving uh, just before the quarterfinals. So uh, uh, I'll be working with ITV, doing a lot of the work in in the UK and then yeah, heading out ready for the quarterfinals onwards. Well, let's hope that England get there and you see them. Well, now they're just to settle. Look, they're all, it's all the warm matches. The phony war is all over. Very quickly, what, how do you think the respective sides are shaping up? Uh, look, um, I'll talk with England first. Um, for me, England looks strong, quite exciting to see that uh, Eddie Jones has all these different combinations of players that he can he can definitely mix up, and especially with the tournament starting with two physically strong sides for them, Tonga and USA. Um, it gives him opportunities to try different players out uh, and then build on that strength. So I think England shaping up quite well. Um, Wales, look. You know, they won one of their four warm-up games. But I, I think, for, for me with Wales, they are a team that grow. So as the tournament kicks off, I think you're only going to see um, them get better. So obviously their their first game um, is going to be a tester for them. But their second game is where they need to really be at it. And that's Australia. 
So for me, I think Wells are probably not necessarily where they need to be at yet, but it's about peaking at the right time. So Wells, I do not discount them out at all. Ireland didn't necessarily have the best of um, warm-up games, to be fair, but the reality is they're a side that you can't uh, count out. And I, I think that you'll, you'll see them... Um, obviously be tested against Scotland but they can still have a really good uh, good route to the semi-finals in particular and obviously Scotland you know um, for me Scotland are the side that they've had a few injuries they've got depth again their first big games against Ireland so they need to be able to pull out the bag so yeah overall I think everyone's shaping good but not until the tournament starts can you really tell what uh, teams can do I don't know if they rigged this I, I, I'm sure they didn't rig it but um in previous World Cups and in the FIFA Football World Cup, quite often you have to wait till the end of the pool games before they get excited and the tension. Right from the off, you've got games like New Zealand, South Africa. You've got Ireland, Scotland. And because these come right at the beginning, it means that nearly every weekend you've got huge games. And I, you know, I, if you could arrange a tournament in that way it would be better for everyone it's it's possibly just fallen like that but this is going to be special because you have really crucial games now the first the opening games possibly not Wales but certainly Ireland and Scotland are going to be playing their starting 15s their strongest 15s they've got to do that England have Tonga first I can't see Eddie playing more than a handful of uh, first string can you? You know, from my perspective, I reckon Eddie will probably do half and half. So he's got Tonga and he's got USA soon after. So what I would do if I was in his position, you know, not necessarily start your full out and out strength side, but what you would do is put some of your strong players in there, but some players who theoretically aren't your starting fifteen, but are you know um, will definitely be utilised throughout the tournament. So you've got a real balance because what you don't want to do is is risk your big players to injury. Um, you and put the big players on the bench wouldn't. Big players on the off. bench to make sure you've obviously finished the game off. Um, knowing the way Tonga and USA both play, we've seen in previous World Cups and obviously in their in other uh, games that they've played. Tonga are a physical unit, so if I was playing against England, I, I if I was the Tonga head coach, I was playing against England. I wouldn't dart my my first team because actually I know that that's the game that I probably probably wouldn't win. So actually, what I would do is put um, again my not second string, but players who wouldn't be necessarily my starting um, players. And if you're not a starting player, you would want to go out and prove your worth against against England. So what I expect is Tonga, those Tonga players, are going to want to absolutely destroy England, want to prove their worth. Um, so I think it's going to be a physical game, and same with USA as well. You know, they're going to want to go out to, to prove their worth, and that's where injuries are at risk for England. Well, the former England coach... World Cup winning coach uh, Sir Clive Wood, Wood, he thinks discipline is England's biggest enemy this year and defence coach John Mitchell has revealed that Owen Farrell is working on his tackling technique. He really certainly needs to after some risky attempts. Um, he's been walking the tightrope, hasn't he? Um, it's simple as this, isn't it? If you make the referee make a decision, you can't complain if he gets it wrong. Yeah, totally true. Um, I think it's good to hear that that Owen is working on that. He's been very much open about that. Um, he has been on a bit of a tightrope. We all remember that game against South Africa, which pretty much came down to England winning it. But 
the tackle at the end pretty much could have cost England that game. Um, and, and going into the World Cup, you know, prior to any World Cup or any tournament, referees all come together and they talk with the coaches in terms of what's going to be the themes of the tournament. And I guarantee you um, tackle height is going to be one thing that they're going to be hot on. And and it's best to not put yourself in that light that you're going to get picked up. So for Owen, you know, doing all that work prior to the tournament is only going to ensure that he stays on the pitch for a bit longer and England don't give away penalties that are effectively uh, not required. Well, the referees have all uh, had a meeting and they've been counselled, or if not told by World Rugby. We, I don't know what they've been told, but this is usual. And there'll be certain things that they've been told they must referee strictly because... World Rugby are well aware that this is the global showpiece for the game. And even if you don't like um, refereeing, taking account of that, you have to, and they will do. So all the sides have to find out what the referees are going to do by terms of interpretation and just adapt. And England... It doesn't. It's not recent, and their penalty giving has been a problem for ever since Eddie Jones, and probably before that. What I mean, what do you do if sides are giving if your side is giving away too many penalties? How do you sort that out? Um, well, that's where you, you come to the leaders in the team, you know, and everyone's questioned a little bit England and, and their leadership uh, and the players in that team who can change things when things aren't going so well. So in my previous England team, if we gave away too many penalties, you know, the key players would, would bring the squad together uh, and it's pretty much it's problem solving, you know. So it's not about saying to people, guys, stop giving away penalties because, you know, no one wants to give away penalties on purpose, but it's about actually identifying what do we need to do in the next five, ten minutes to ensure sure that we get the referee on side so yeah I'd say almost for England and they're fully aware of it it's it's basically being on the being on the line you know because the way they play at the moment with John Mitchell their defense is ruthless and we don't want to take that away from England but it's about not giving away cheap penalties which you can easily avoid the only problem with that is it what if it's the team leaders that are committing the penalties which is one of the things look Ireland Scotland huge game for both of them uh, Henshaw has been ruled out hamstring injury only just returned um, to me Ireland haven't recaptured and I don't think they are going to recapture their form of 2018 I, I brilliant players world class players though they are the halfbacks Murray and Sexton have had so many games out over you know 12 months it is very, very difficult, even for very talented players, to suddenly come back and play absolutely on par. And if they don't, Ireland don't function anywhere near as well, um, you know, as they should do. Yeah. Scot- Scotland, they're trying to find their way back in. Who knows if they've got the fluency to play the game that they need to? Interesting clash. I'm not. I I can't really pick it. No, nor can I at the moment. Um, you know, looking at the warm up games for both of them, we, we haven't seen the best of Ireland. We haven't seen the best of Scotland, really. Um, so this first game of uh, the World Cup for them, I, it's almost I hate using the cliches, but it's going to be quite unpredictable. You're not really quite sure what um, what form they are going to be in uh, on that game. Um, but you've you really highlighted, you know, Murray and Sexton are two key decision makers for Ireland, and they pretty much run the game and they haven't had a lot of rugby and they haven't necessarily been on form as well and you almost feel when they're not on their best it does have an impact on Ireland um, it's, it's going to be a tough one to call I, I mean I don't I'm not necessarily going to 
say who I think is going to win it, but I do think it will be it will be one of those games where it it, it will go down to the final final like final play final minute. Wales have Fiji first up. Um, on paper, there should be a win, although everyone knows it will be a physical game. Now, in every World Cup, the Pacific Islands have had one big, between them, have had a big win over a Tier 1 team. Uh, you're just waiting to see which one it will be. Could it be this one? Oh, I don't know. So um, I think when it comes to Fiji, I think you're a side that I generally think could cause a major upset in this in this tournament, as you've really highlighted, especially in Pool D. Um, you know, Wales is a they're a team that have, we haven't seen the best of them yet, so they can quite easily potentially lose it to Fiji. Um, but Fiji also they're playing Australia, and have, uh, and I think. They're playing. They're actually playing Australia first, and I think that could be quite an interesting one to see how that how that pans out. But I generally feel with Fiji, they've got some key players who are who are exciting to watch. You know, I think with Fiji, if they were playing Scotland, who play a very open game, that could go either way. When Wales play, you know, whichever combination they put out, you know, their defence. You've seen all the warm-up games, the scoring uh, is very low yeah. on both sides, and that's one of their problems. So that's not ideal for Fiji. A lot of Welsh fans are quietly confident, some of them are not so quietly confident, uh, about them actually lifting the trophy. Now, for me, the only reservation I have about that, I don't have any reservation about the players or the defence, which is very good, I just wonder if they have the scoring potential. If, for example, the first 20 minutes goes wrong and you have a bad bounce, a bad decision, a bad play, and they go two scores behind, do they have the armoury, now, especially with Anscombe not being there, you know, to come back and score points quickly? I think um, you sort of highlighted it there as well. I guess what the worry that I have for Wales is the depth especially at the half-back position. And Reese Patchell, didn't he pick up an injury as well in the, in the warm-up game? So you almost feel if the, the shoulder, all the weight of pressure is on Dan Bigger, um, and, and I guess he gets a lot of criticism on the way, I guess, he manages the Welsh team and it's very much one-dimensional. I mean, for me, he's proved his worth. He's, a, he's a brilliant at what he does. Um, and if anything, it, it, not having Gareth Anscombe, you know, to come on potentially to to change it up a little bit, he, he's got to... He's got to play a different way, and we saw that with Wales. They started to play a different way in the warm-up games, um, but I think there is always a worry with the way they play. Is it one-dimensional? Is it predictable? And they have to almost have variety in their attack because when you come up against the the, the bigger teams, let's say if they come out of their pool, you know they could possibly meet England in, in that quarter-final, um, and and you, you're going to have to change up the way you play. Because for me, they've got a very very good back three and they need to get those players involved a lot more than just trying to take ball on counter-attack you know they've got the attacking potential they need to find a way to get them involved much more often One player who isn't in Eddie Jones's squad, it was a surprise to many, is Danny Kerr, the England and Harlequin scrum half and Telegraph columnist who's now going to join us. Hello, Danny. Hello, guys. You okay? Yeah, not bad. Um, how's your ankle? It, it's all right. It's all right. I'm two weeks post-op, uh, just about walking again on it. I've still got this big moon boot on, but I think we're ahead of schedule. Um, one of those, mate. Not the end of the world, but annoying timing. I presume that means you're not on standby. <laughs> <laughs> it 
you never know, bro. I'm still, uh, <laughs> still holding on to that one hope, you know, the, yeah. the old Stephen Donald that you never know. Look, yeah. it's, it's one of those things. Um, I'm just focused on getting back as soon as I can, trying to get back in a Quinn shirt. And, but stranger things have happened. So um, I, I'm probably a fool to, to believe that it still could happen, but, mate, you never know. Well, you've spoken to the uh, Telegraph about your thoughts on the residency rules, and uh, you were oh, I know you were hugely disappointed in the omission. Um, not a personal issue, I don't imagine, with... Uh, with uh, Heinz, but um, more of more of well, more of a, a law issue. Is that does that make it worse? Uh, I think. Look, I've, I've got absolutely no problems with with Willie Hines. He's a good bloke and he's a good player. Um, you know, I, I was as shocked as a lot of people to know that he he was eligible to play for to play for England when when I found out he could. So, but look, it's. It's not nothing on him. I think there's other ones in in world rugby that have probably stung people a little bit more. You know, with Devin Toner and the and the Irish World Cup squad. Uh, for me, it's it, it's obviously just a massive disappointment to to have the opportunity taken away from you. Um, and whether it would have been me or it had been Ben Spencer or Dan Robson or Richard Wigglesworth, you know, it's it's kind of like someone new has come onto the scene very quickly and and got that spot. Um, but. It's one of them. I can't sit at home moping about it. It's happened. You've got to get on with it. And I'm thoroughly behind the team. And hopefully they'd go all the way in, in Japan. Hey, Danny. It's Maggie here. Hey, Maggie. OK. Yeah, not too bad. I guess the, the question I want to ask you is, obviously, you're not part of the squad. And, and, and obviously, I think you're a fantastic player. Um, the, are you going to enjoy the World Cup? Are you going to watch it still? Or are you just going to focus on you know, getting yourself back and, and you know, fit, for, fit for club rugby? Yeah, it's a tough one. I'm sure you you feel the same when you when you're out. You feel like you're missing out, and and there's there's obviously going to be a massive amount of of, of jealousy. I'd say that's the word. I'd absolutely love to be out there in Japan, playing for my country and the chance of winning the World Cup. But um, I'm trying to dive into a bit of the media side of things. I'm going to be doing a bit uh, with ITV and BBC, and obviously got my my, my column with the Telegraph. So. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of looking at it from from that side of things and probably taking a more of a, an open mind into the tournament rather than just having my England blinkers on. I'm going to be looking at a lot of other teams. And I'm just completely dead excited, I think, like everyone else is, to, just to watch some unbelievable games. You know, that first weekend of World Cup uh, action, some unbelievable uh, games going to be going to be shown. So I'm excited just to, to sit back and watch it from my sofa and, and enjoy it. So, Danny, since you're crossing over to the dark side in the world of media, are you going to have your phone on and you're going to be messaging the boys, you know, getting some insider um, yeah, knowledge and background? Uh, look, I think, you know, I've, I've got some close bonds with a lot of the boys that are out there and a lot of the lads that we kind of started the journey together with Eddie three years ago. So uh, I know how hard they've worked. I know the effort they've put into to each session that, that Eddie puts out there and I've got some good friends there, obviously a couple of Harlequins in, in Joe Marler and Carl Sinclair. So I'll be definitely keeping in touch with the boys, seeing how they are and, uh, you know, wishing them all the best. Uh, as for England's chances, you've written that they have a capability to go all the way. I agree. But what makes you think that they could win it in particular? I, I think that they've generally got two or three of the world's best players at the moment. Um, I think with Owen Farrell, you've got a guy that, doesn't crack under any sorts of pressure. Uh, he he relishes that, and he's a born winner, and he's leading the team. He also doesn't miss many kicks, which is going to help. Um, 
But I think someone like Manu Tuilangi, I think there isn't many people in the world like him. Um, someone that possesses as much power in defence as he does in attack. And he has got the X factor. He is a guy that if England are in trouble in a game, they need a score. He'll just say, give me the ball and I'll, I'll go and do something. And he has the ability to go and change a game like that. Um, I think for England, they've, they're going to have to win five very tough games in a row, which I think other teams are probably going to have. You know, you look at New Zealand to Africa, one very tough game at the start, relatively easier three and then into a quarterfinals. But I think that's where England could get it right, that they will go in battle hard and you just hope that they don't expend too much energy in that Argentina and French game to then lose a bit in the, in the next three. But um, I'm highly confident that, that England can go all the way. I think it's between them, South Africa and New Zealand. But um, I think England have got the capability to do it. Well, when they're all available, if they're picked, I've never seen as many genuine ball carriers in an England side. Nowhere near. And that, for me, is a huge factor. But let's just ask you um, about a combination which you have been part of, the 9-10. Ford, Farrell, Farrell at 10, Farrell at 12, Ford on the bench, etc., etc. What's your take on that? It's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, look, I think there's there's huge benefits of of both of playing Ford and Farrell together, but then also playing Farrell with a Tuolangi and a Slade combination or a Jonathan Joseph. Uh, and I think the best thing about it is that George Ford and, and Owen Farrell's relationship is so strong. They know each other's game so well. They've played with each other since they were five or six. But if George does come onto the pitch, if they need to change something then the team can just seamlessly fit into that style of play. Um, and I don't think many other teams in the world go in with that genuine connection of a 10-12 like England do. So I think there will be games where I think Owen will start at 10 and I think there will be games where George starts. And I do think England maybe will get one up on a few teams there that they have that that genuine 10-12 relationship. Danny, um I fully understand when you said you, you'll be jealous. I totally understand that as a player, as a, as a human being. A lot of people might not, but that's because you're a competitor. Uh, enjoy your media time. Um, perhaps a career afterwards, but thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cheers, guys. Yes. Maggie, Warren Gatland has admitted that his side have been training with balls covered in baby oil. Now, you can pay him a lot of money for that in London, but... Um, He's preparing, so it's said, for the humidity in Japan. And I understand this because Kings Park in Durban, I played a game there, was almost impossible to hold the ball properly. It was a nightmare to throw in and so on. Um, have you ever come across that? Well, I've uh, I've never put baby oil on a rug ball. I'll be open honest with that. Um, but I have been That's out... Not no, no, no. <laughs> I have look. I have been out in Japan. And I know what it's like in terms of humidity, and like you've, you've made a very good comparison there. And it has a massive impact on the ball. You know, uh, trying to get decent grip, trying to create those long, big uh, miss passes. It, it does make um, make things a little bit difficult. And we you know we talk about other top sports teams, and they always talk about that marginal gains. You know, doing their one percenters. And and for Warren, it's it. If this is the one thing that might help prepare the squad for the conditions that they're going to go through, I've been to Kitakushu where they currently are at the moment, and and again it it gets really hot. So if it will prepare them, then you know you do whatever it takes. 
The worst thing uh, about humidity is it, if it's pouring down, everyone can see it's bad conditions and they make allowances. When it's sunny and they think, why aren't you catching this? This is ridiculous. What better conditions could you have? But there's no way to stop it. You know, you, you carry on sweating. You can put, you know, the, the grease, you know, the stuff on your hands. It works for about two minutes and it, get, get, it washes off. Uh, gloves, no, they get soaked as well. So, well... Players will just have to put up with it. And actually, um, they should have been prepared for this. Well, we were just talking about the Pacific Islands and their contribution. Um, There's been a lot of talk recently about them not being supported in the way that they should be. Why don't we speak to another guest, Daniel Leo, who's the CEO of the Pacific Island Welfare, and he's a former Samoan international. Hello, Daniel. Brian, pleasure to be here. Yes, and you. Can you just explain what your work is with the the welfare um, body? Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, since 2016, we were established uh, as the, I guess, the European branch of uh, Pacific Welfare, looking after uh, 400 odd players who have uh, have moved to Europe, uh, with the main reason of them sort of, uh, you know, rugby as, as a profession. So, uh, looking uh, helping players from, you know, England, France, the more obvious markets to you know, start places as far flung as Russia now, Romania, uh, Italy, you know, has been uh, pro and pro for a while. So, yeah, we've got, uh, um, you know, close, close to 500 players now uh, at sort of every level uh, from the Pacific Islands. And a lot of those guys come from the Pacific Islands themselves. You know, people like myself who've had a stepping stone from of New Zealand or Australia, it's probably a little bit easier. Uh, but some of those guys who've uh, come directly from the Pacific, um, it's a little bit more difficult, you know, just uh, mundane stuff like getting a driver's license or putting your, your kids into school and understanding Ofsted in the UK can be quite difficult if, you're, you know, if, you've, if you've never had that background. So, yeah, just working on a whole lot of levels, really. And the other side is the advocacy, really pushing for, for better conditions for those players as well. And um, yeah. Well, I, that's a, 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 an astonishing statistic. I knew there were a lot of Pacific Island players in Europe. I didn't appreciate it was that high number. Can we talk about the uh, the World Cup? Tonga um, take on England this weekend. Um, they had a difficult afternoon recently against the All Blacks. Can you see them causing England any problems? Oh, geez. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, Tonga and the will, will benefit hugely from um, even even two weeks uh, uh, together. We just don't have the resources to be able to pull our teams together for any uh, relevant um, amount of time. So, you know, with that tour, you know, two weeks in between the All Blacks and, and, and England, I think a lot of uh, a lot of uh, gains can be made over that period. So I'd imagine a very different side. Also, you've got a, a few key players to come back into that mix that weren't there for the All Blacks game. Um, you know, Steve Luffy, who's probably quite well known over here from his time at Leicester and uh, in France, coming back to London Irish at the end of the World Cup, will make a huge difference just to their set piece. So I'd imagine Tonga to, to really, you know, to step up and, and, and put a put you know put a pressure. I don't, I don't see them winning, um, but you know, I, I, I can't see the you know the blowout and the score that uh, happened in the All Blacks a couple of weeks ago. Fiji have a really good well, well, a, a good in terms of tier two uh, teams at the World Cups. They don't play uh, home nation Wales first up, but uh, do you think uh, they are going to knock anyone off? Because I, because statistically, the Pacific Islands always take one tier one scalp in a World Cup. You just don't know which one it is. Can you see that being a potential one? 
Yeah, I think um, you know. I think actually, I think there's a, there's a couple of scalps that could be taken in this World Cup. When I look at it, you know, Samoa are coming into form. Uh, we had a, had a, had a narrow loss to the to the Wallabies uh, over the weekend, um, and they've got you know that you know they've coming they're coming into a pool where Scotland and Ireland aren't you know well particularly Ireland are probably in the form that they'd like. So you'd look, like to think as a Samoan team that you know team they could they could uh, knock off one maybe two even even the host Japan in that pool, but. Uh, I think for Fiji, you know, everybody's talking them up this World Cup, and that's never a good thing for uh, for a Fiji inside who really uh, thrive on being the underdogs, and you know, nobody giving them a chance. And um, you know, you've seen it, in, uh, particularly when they, you know, the first couple of games. I think they've got a, the, the Wallabies and then Wales. That really they need to win one of those games to to pro- progress through, uh, if not both of them. And um, I, I think Fiji, you know, the typical stuff. They've got the best backline in the world, hands down. But when it comes to the tight exchanges, I still question whether you know whether they can really front up in the set piece and the ping bow game when Wales turn on the power game and really you know in the tight exchanges. That's where they'll, that's where they'll be tested, and that's where Fiji always tested. So as long as you stay away from that sort of game against Fiji, you, you usually do pretty well. And when I was playing for Samoa, we, we used to play Fiji twice a year, so I was very well versed. And you just don't give them targets, don't give them a chance to put on a big hit early or make a big break. If you can hold the ball against Fiji, you you, 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 you know most of the majority of the time you win, and you win convincingly. So I think most teams are switched on to that. So Fiji have got their work cut out for them in terms of people that are starting to realise how to play and also all of their players you know the majority I think 60 60 or 70% of their squad are based here either in, in England or France now so their their players aren't the unknown quantity that they usually are coming into a World Cup you know we all know that the De La Salles and the Rapini Salfaldi Bookers coming in but you know usually you know one or two uh, names in the squad now they're not the unknown quantity so but, so people will have a, more of an understanding of what they bring to to the table and I think Fiji have got their, got their work cut out and saying that they've got some of the best players in the world not just in the backs now but in the forwards um, particularly in the back row and Pistelliato uh, who's at Claremont uh, Villami Mata who's at Edinburgh now you know, two, two top back rows in the uh, standout back rows in the European uh, competition this year so they do have the uh, you know some of the best players in the world it's just whether they can pull it all together again struggle with the, the time together uh, but they've had a nice build up uh, John McKee the coach there has been very proactive in coming to Europe and touching base with the players but also with the coaching staff and making sure that he's got the best players available to them uh, for this World Cup so definitely if you look at across the board I think in terms of Pacific Island Fiji look like you know from the outset that they've got the best chance of, of really causing an upset not just causing an upset against one side but you know hopefully progressing into a, a quarter final where you know we haven't had a Pacific Island side in the quarter finals for a while now so it'll be I think we're, we're well due one well, what to do about the gap between the Tier 1 and 2 nations? I saw recently Steve Hansen and the New Zealand rugby chairman Brett Impey saying the gap is getting wider, not smaller. Uh, ben Ryan, who you will know uh, from Fiji 7s, um, has talked extensively on this podcast about developing the game in the Pacific Islands. He is of the opinion you need a super rugby franchise down there with a stadium. The problem with that is, uh, will you get the money through? Will the uh, government play ball and so on? But I thought a couple of the things that you world rugby could do to help the Pacific Islands, and which wouldn't cost money, you could change the nationality rules so that anyone who comes over to Europe or a different country... Um, 
and uh, takes a nationality and doesn't get in a World Cup squad can still play for their original country, even if they've got capped before that. I would make it only uh, one way, so it only applies to two, tier two teams, because that would, I, I, I haven't gone through the number of players, but I would think there are several, if not more players, um, who would be available that aren't because of the present rules. Yeah, definitely. I think um, as long as it's done with integrity, there's there's definitely scope to look at the eligibility laws that uh, we, you know, that the uh, governing body currently abides by. Um, we've got uh, a lot of players, Samoan uh, heritage, and, uh, and 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 Samoan born players who've played one or two tests, um, you know, just to be discarded and, and never to play for you know for for England, Austra- uh, sorry for New Zealand, Australia again, um, who would make a significant uh, difference to our national squads if those guys were able to come back. Maybe it's as you say they cap it at, you know, if you've played over ten caps you can't you can't come back or, you know, there's a you know, there's a three day three three year stand down period from your last cap in line with how long it takes to, to qualify a country by a by nationality. Um, but definitely I think, you know, the, the current laws do not reflect uh, today's world and the fact that someone like myself uh, is uh, Samoan, you know, Samoan parent uh, New Zealand the mother, um and um, you know, and, and I played for played for Samoa, but um, a lot of people made the decision to play for New Zealand and can never go back to represent their countries of heritage, which is I think is quite sad. And it's not con- conducive to the growth of the game. And that's I think the, the key thing is if we want to grow the game, we need to invest a bit more into tier two. As you say, it doesn't need to be necessarily monetary. I think it could be both. I think um, there needs to be some sort of gate taking share by where a tier two country visits a tier one nation um, there, there needs to be some sort of you know similar to the FA Cup model where, where some of that, that money that's being generated by the match needs to go back into that, uh, that, that developing side nation as well because um, you know we've got the problem here of every time we play against England someone comes to England we don't receive any of the gate takings any of the profits being generated by the TV audiences or anything really so we come and that's based on a reciprocal agreement um, but the problem being England never comes to some, we haven't had England come to somewhere in, in our history, um, so it's never reciprocated. So for me, it's got to be a it's got to be a profit share model come into world rugby, which would make it sustainable. Um, you know, if Japan play it, there shouldn't be this gap where where the England players, you know, and the, the English union can afford to play to play. For, now I think it's up towards thirty thousand pounds per match, and the Japanese get paid two hundred pounds, or the Fijians get paid. 150 pounds. I think the gap has gone too wide. So it's just uh, about about bringing that back. And I agree in, in, in a sense with what Steve Hansen said. You know, there, there needs to be more done. But I think we need to. You know, I thought it was a bit rich in, in a way. I think <laughs> you know, New Zealand <laughs> haven't been that great in terms of you know helping us develop. Either. You know, they put in they put in. Um, uh, blocks, which mean that our players can't play in the Super Rugby competitions in New Zealand. Um, you know, one, one or two players max. So it means that our players have had to come over to Europe um, and take up opportunities over here, which means we're so far flung, which is very difficult for any, you know, any nation, particularly when you're stretched for resources, to bring a squad together for any meaningful uh, camps, uh, you know, training camps. So, you know, everyone needs to look at their backyard before they start pointing the fingers at others, I think. They also need to look at the fact that if they really want a global game, then the rich people have to uh, get their hands in the pockets. But that's not always the case. Daniel, great to speak to you, mate. Um, doing great work uh, around here, and thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
they don't come much bigger than this. New Zealand and South Africa on the first weekend, though. A bit of a lottery or not. Um, New Zealand, well, they're still the team to beat, probably. But the Springboks have had wins over them recently. Why don't we speak to a former Springbok who's a regular contributor and co-host to this podcast, Tinas Delport. Hello, Tinas. Hey, Brian. How are you? Okay, mate. What is the expectation back home about this? What's the mood like? I think the mood is, is very positive around um, facing the All Blacks. I mean, it's a, it is going to be a massive marker um, for the Rugby World Cup. You know, it's uh, the first big game um, that's going to be played for the Springboks. And, you know, the, the team will go in with a lot of confidence um, because of recent results and um, recent performances against the All Blacks. So there's a lot of, lot of positivity and uh, a lot of good expectations that's, that's been put on this team um, for this World Cup. Hey, Tina, this is Maggie here. Hey, Maggie. Tina, I'm going to ask you the question around uh, the All Blacks assistant coach, Ian Foster. Uh, he recently said that the key to beating South Africa is unlocking their defence. Is there more to, to this African side than just their, their good defence? Yeah, I think they, um, they've, they've really worked into the traditional play of South African rugby. So, you know, yes, it is a very aggressive defensive system that they've, they've put in place. But it's on the back of a very strong pack that um, that can be dominant. So um, defensively, it's probably the strength. But although um, you know they they put a, apply a lot of pressure through through the forwards, the defensive system, the high balls. There's also a couple of really exciting players in the back, um, and then you know you can expect from the turnovers that will be created. Guys like Cheslin Colby, um, Sabun Corsi, um, Billy LaRue, these are all really, really great finishers. So um, I think although they, the emphasis will probably be, be um, on the defence, um, they, they're very quick to transition into the attack. Well, one of the things that they have, like New Zealand and England, possibly not Wales, possibly not Ireland, they have the ability to score points quickly. And that could be very important when you get into games. Because as you know, things cannot go your way for the first 20. You can find yourself behind. And if, if you don't have that creative, you don't have that ability, you are unlikely to get it back. Can I just ask you about the head coach, Razi Erasmus? Because didn't you play with him at both club and was it international as well uh, level? Did, is that right? Yeah, we, we, we played several years together uh, in Super Rugby and Curry Cup and then also Test Rugby. Um, so, yeah, he's, um, he, was a, he was a really good teammate uh, in the playing days. Did you know way back then that he was bound to have a coaching career and become a top coach? Yeah, Rassi was always um, one of the thinkers um, in the side. You know, he invested really early on. Um, in an analysis suite, um, even in those days in the late 90s, early 2000s, before everything was really digitized and on computer, he he bought this um, analysis suite um, to to really look and analyze games and come up with plans. So he's always he's always been from from playing days. He's been very intelligent about um, coming up with plays, analyzing the opposition. Um, I remember one day um, against uh, the, the Hurricanes in the Super Rugby, he came up with this plan in the lineup where they lift him up because he was lighter than the other guys. And then whilst he's up there, move back. Uh, and then, then they throw the ball to him whilst he's being sort of supported up in the air. Um, and it took everyone, including the referees, 
um, by surprise, and, and you know, and it's something we got away with uh, on that day because he he is a, a thinker about the game, um, and and that was always you know that was always going to be his path was going to be further into rugby because of his um, intense knowledge of the game and you know the effort he's put in in terms of analysing uh, and study the game really. Tinas, um, look, there's been some controversy surrounding the second row Etzebeth. You know, this week, you know, he's been accused of alleged assault and racial abuse. You know, the question I want to ask you is, how big of a story is this back in South Africa, and do you expect it to affect the team's preparation going into the weekend? No, they. I mean, I think it's it's a lot of it is is politically driven. Um, back home about about this incident, there's um, a lot of people that's been defending. Um, um, even Etzebed and his, his um, what apparently happened or allegedly happened and, and sort of rubbishing it, you know, sort of really come out strong in defense of him and his character. And this is from all walks of life in South Africa. So I do think there's probably a little bit of political motivation in terms of the accusations, but that still needs, uh, the verdict is still out on that and it still needs to be proven. I think what this team has done really well is is the fact that um, they they really tighten the t- squad together. You can see um, that they really enjoy each other's company, um, both on and off the pitch. And the, um, I, I don't think this will have such a big impact. They'll they'll solely be focusing on on what needs to be done on the weekend. Tinas, very quickly and finally, uh, what's your gut feeling about the weekend? I have a I have a good gut feeling, Brian. Um, I you know. For me, the key bit is to see the reaction of the Springbok players compared to the All Black players after that draw in the Rugby Championship. Um, you know, the, the, new, the, the expression on the All Blacks' faces and their reaction was that of defeat. The Springbok boys were absolutely crazy and going in celebration. So it shows me that they it means a lot to them um, facing the All Blacks, getting results against them. So they're really positive. Um, they've got that confidence that they can upset the All Blacks. So for me, I'll um, compared to this time last year, I'm a lot more confident that this weekend will be successful for the Springboks. Well, absolutely. And the good thing for both sides is they can't meet each other um, till the final thereafter. Anyway, mate, I'll enjoy it. Uh, maybe we'll speak to you afterwards. Great stuff. Thanks, Brian. It's uh, certainly going to be an exciting World Cup and I think everyone uh, can't wait for, for Friday for the kickoff. So fantastic to be part of, uh, of this rugby world spectacle. Just like to mention the former Welsh player and British and Irish Lion, Gareth Thomas, who... Quite a while ago, uh, came out and uh, revealed that he was uh, gay, whether or not you think that was brave or whatever I personally do. He's now, I understand, uh, also uh, broadcast via social media that he's got the condition of HIV. Now, I now also understand that this was the subject of a newspaper story and that probably that forced his hand whether he wanted to reveal that or not. And that's one of the iniquities of uh, newspapers doing that sort of thing. All I'll say is, uh, Gareth, um, HIV is not the uh, disastrous prospect that it used to be and hopefully uh, there'll be uh, enough treatment for you. You're a battler. Um, You're a brave man, you're a good man, and uh, you have mine and I'm sure everyone else's in rugby's best wishes. Maggie? 
Yeah, Gareth, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for, for, I guess, coming out to speak about it. And if anything, what you have done is you've given others the opportunity to, to speak about it openly who have that condition. And, you know, you've got the rugby family support no matter what. And uh, I think you're an absolute legend. And also well done on your Ironman on the weekend. I saw you did really well. And I, I saw the crowd in full support for you because we truly, are, we truly do uh, respect you as a, as a person and, and as a, a true rugby legend. Maggie, as you're here and you are one of the biggest names still in uh, women's rugby, um, I want to talk to you about the trans uh, rugby issue which uh, arose recently and which turned, in my Twitter feed at least, to be very toxic. Um, If you don't know about this, Kelly Morgan, who was born Nicholas Morgan, um, he or she had played for East Wales as a teenager, returned to the game following transitioning to a female, now playing in the women's game. There were some... I understand why the coach said these things. I think he was making light of it, but some of the comments he made about, uh, you know, um, folding opponents like deck chairs and so on and so on, uh, in retrospect, were not wise. But the issue is a big one. It's obviously bigger in athletics, but it comes into rugby and probably increasingly... So there are very entrenched views on this um, and some are not particularly nice, if you ask me. Um, What's your stance on the topic? So to start off with Brian, I read your article and I thought your article was very good. Um, And the unfortunate thing uh, and the situation that we're in right now, um, transgender people in sport is getting a lot of controversy um, and it's not being handled in the best way as far as I'm concerned. So if I talk about rugby, I'm not going to necessarily answer the question because I think it's such a complex um, question and the response is also going to be quite complex. So my view is that our sport is inclusive. I don't care what anyone says. It's an inclusive sport and we need to open up to allow people to play our sport. I think the 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 issue that we have is that obviously we've got many transgender people coming into the sport and the the challenge is, is that we need to make sure that we protect everyone. Yes. So my view is I guess I throw it back to world rugby is making sure we manage the situation. So I think it's important that we do open it up for transgender uh, women to play the sport. The same we have transgender men playing the sport. It's not obviously been spoken about. There probably is transgender men playing uh, in the in the men's game, but we need to find a way of making sure we manage the, manage the uh, manage the situation. So what I guess will come down to is I think it, we should open our sport to allow people to play the sport. Um, we just got to make sure, like anything, we manage the manage the environment to ensure that everyone who's playing um, are protected. But I, 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 who, do, who do you support them playing the sport? Well, a lot of people who don't know about rugby and uh, use rugby just as a vehicle to you know, make their own political or ethical point didn't, don't, don't understand that even within uh, male or female rugby, there are huge differences in size. You know, um, and one of the things that they were saying is simply, if you have transgender women, the imbalance in size and power makes it dangerous. Well, I saw a photograph of the Hong Kong scrum half, who was about four, four eleven. You know, and the tallest, I think, Irish player who's six five. I mean, huge disparity. We let them play because we know that is not necessarily dangerous. So that aspect of it, automatically, the problem I have is is this: women's rugby is the 
growth area of rugby. It's very important we get it right. I believe the future of the game, actually, and the whole game, including men's rugby, is going to be in the hands of women and growing their game for various reasons. You would only need an unfortunate incident with a transgender female player, even if it wasn't causative because of the disparity in size, to put a lot of girls, females off actually stepping onto the field if they thought there was a prospect that that would happen and that it was automatically dangerous. We can't afford to have that. And therefore, because the research is partial, not conclusive and still uh, very much in dispute, I just think both legally you know, uh, and probably ethically uh, and for rugby reasons, world rugby and the governing bodies should have to say, look, until we get more information on this and we can prove within our parameters that there is not an automatic risk, then I'm sorry, just for the moment, we, we, we can't allow this. But if the information comes along, absolutely. It's a difficult one, isn't it, Ryan? Um, so first, again, I always, I'm always i going to throw it back to World Rugby and, the, and our governing body to make sure that this needs to be addressed. And, I, and what I slightly am frustrated about is that nothing has really come to the forefront to discuss how we're we going to manage this issue. I'm hugely against stopping someone from playing our sport um you know i i I just want our sport to be inclusive um and again i come back to the bit that we need to find ways of managing the environment so if i was to play in a game um and i'm and i had a it was a transgender woman in the opposition team if i was informed of that i think it should be down to the team and the players who are playing that game to make that decision it should not be based on the fact that because she's a transgender woman that the game is not going to happen and she's not allowed to play Uh, i hugely disagree with it and I think I'm I'm even more frustrated the fact that no one's really asked. I mean, a lot of the the women who play the sport. Let's actually hear what people have got to say. And I know people have made their comments, and people who are outside of the sport have made the comments. Again, if I was in a situation where I was up against a transgender woman, I would I'd still play. Um, and 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 I think it's important to make sure that the people who are playing that game feel that they are comfortable with with that situation. You were part of three World Cup squads, so was I actually, but 2006, 10 and 14, finally got there in 14. I saw uh, not all of them live, I saw two of them live. Um, how did it feel to finally get your hands on the the World Cup? Brian, you know what it's like playing in no, any... <laughs> Do you know, playing in a World Cup is tough, um, and then getting to a final, you feel like you, you, you know your hands already are on the cup, and then to lose it um, is 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 painful. It really is. I'm not going to lie to you. And and with my England team that I was part of, we went through that you know over a 12 year period. So to spend four years, get there, then lose it, then spend another four years, get to the final, and then lose it by three points. Um, How did you pick yourself up? Because with a lot of people, to carry on, because it's an, as you say, it's another four years dedication. It's quite a way away. Um, and you've got to find the motivation to go again. And you had to do it twice. Yeah, I mean, so I remember after 2010 in particular, because uh, a lot of the players were still quite young. So we, we had that ability to keep going on for another four years. I just remember us having a meeting talking about, you know, you know, are we going to commit to this? Are we going to go again for another four years? And I think that, that that drive and that motivation to know that we are capable of winning a World Cup, when you have that inner belief, you feel like actually we should continue, we should keep going. Um, 
and knowing that our England team had got to a final several times beforehand and not won a World Cup, I think it was starting to turn from not just belief, it was starting to turn to frustration because <laughs> we, we, we had the players. And the reason why I would say probably we lost it in 2010 was that the fact that when things were going well, we, it was brilliant. But when things weren't going so well, we didn't how to, didn't know how to um, problem solve and, and change it up. And almost well, as a fine life saw, and I just thought New Zealand kicking game was better. Um, one of the, one of the big factors. Spot on, yeah. Um, you retired shortly after winning. Just that, just said that's enough now. I've got everything I want. Yeah, I had finally spent twelve years of my life and achieved the goal that my team and myself was was working towards, and. I'm very thankful. I got to finish on a high. You know, as you know, Brian, there's many athletes and rugby players in particular that want to end on a high and unfortunately don't have that option. You know, either injury stops them or, at, you know, they're just out of form or they just, you know, weren't, weren't able to make it to that World Cup final that they wanted to get to. So I was able to retire on my on my terms um, and I've been able to transition into the media career. And what's great is I can look back now on my, my journey with fond memories and I can look back at the women's game and think, wow, look where it's going. So I can I feel quite content with the way I finished and just pleased that the women's game is going from strength to strength. All the recognition you've got during your playing career and subsequently, fully deserved, absolutely earned, but are you surprised at the level of it? Um, interesting. I, you know, I have had a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of recognition after the World Cup and I think it was really pleasing. I've got, you know, I've got an MBA, which is amazing. And, uh, you Hall know, of Fame, Hall Pat of Marshall Fame. Award. I know, it's just stop, stop, bro. you know, it's not all about me really, but uh, it's, it's, it's great to have all this recognition and, it's, and I think everyone will always say it's not about you as an individual, it's about a team and I think most importantly, all I wanted was our team to be recognised and what was really great after that World Cup in 2014, we were named BBC Team of the Year, Sports Personality Team of the Year. First time a women's team has ever been uh, won that award. So I think for me, I was just proud that my team had been recognised for that and the management had been recognised for that. Um, but I, I wasn't aware that I was going to get all the accolades that I did get and, you know, it's you can look back that look at, back at those accolades and think that that's awesome, um, but I think now I have to think forward and go. Actually, what do I want to achieve now? What's my next step? And you know, I've got aspirations to who knows one day be CEO of the RFU. Um, but I, I've, I'm going to keep driving, keep working towards being the best that I can be, and uh, and hopefully making you know making the the world of women's sport um, popular and and people want to be be part of it. You could be an MP, but you're probably too no. honest for that. Uh, anyway, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Thank you very much to my co-host Maggie Alfonsi and thank you, as always, to all our guests. Enjoy the opening weekend of the World Cup. It's going to be a cracker and all the rest of it certainly will be as well. Wherever you are, tune in, download, because we'll be looking back next Monday reviewing all the action Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast, it's free, then you won't miss an episode during the World Cup or beyond. And if you want to, write a review while you're there. But for now, it's goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.